Hey, nine o'clock, or excuse me, 11 o'clock at Rocky Peak. How are you doing this morning? Hey, it, woo, nice to see you, YA. It is good to be with you, whether here in the worship center or you're one of the rowdy ones joining us in the Ridge. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. Uh, my name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're here in either venue for the very first time, we're special welcome to you. We're especially glad that you're joining us. Before we go into our time of teaching, I've got a few announcements that I want to share with you. The first thing I want to talk about is that awesome, awesome video we just saw. Whether through a round of applause or through some good old-fashioned hooting and hollering, how many of you have ever served in, or how many of you, because of your kids, have experienced the kids' ministry here at Rocky Peak? We are blessed as a church to have an incredible kids' ministry with a hard-working group of volunteer adults every weekend. And I don't say that as it, just as one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak. I say that as a father of three kids that every week go into that building and are impacted by men and women just like yourself. And what's been crazy as a church is over the last year and a half, two years, our kids' ministry has been growing. Every season, every semester, we've been hitting record numbers. And so as our kids' ministry grows, our need for adults, whether you have experience or not, but are just willing to go before the Lord and say, do you want me to help fill this need? Because God keeps bringing these kids. And so as in a church, it is all of our responsibility to make sure that we are caring for what God is entrusting us with. Inside your program, you've got a brochure. If you open it up, you're going to see some numerical needs of how many people we need each weekend, of where in the service. And also inside, you're going to find a card, which is if you would just like some more information. Information. If you would like to talk with somebody, it's not a commitment. You're just saying, I'm curious, where could I fit in the kids' ministry? You can fill this out and put it in the offering at the end of service, or on your way out on the patio, there are members of our kids' ministry team. You're going to see a big pendant, and they wear uh, these very beautifully bright Rocky Peak kids. They may have one of their shirts on right there, so you're going to be able to see them, talk with them, ask them what it's all about, and they would love to give you some more information. Second thing I want to highlight is on the back of your program, on May 4th, we have an event called Fight Night coming up for, that is designed for all couples at different parts of their journey. Dating, engaged, newly married, been married for decades. We're bringing in two nationally renowned uh, marriage and family counselors, uh, the parents, and they're going to help tell uh, to help give us resources for how do we do conflict well. So I'm excited to attend this with my wife, and I would just hope I would hope that this would be an opportunity we take as couples at Rocky Peak. How to sign up is on the back. Early bird prices are going on right now. It's $15 a ticket right now, so go ahead and sign up. The last thing I want to uh, highlight is the fact that we've got baptisms coming up on the weekend of March 24th. Yeah, March 24th and 25th. As we celebrate the end of Rooted in that weekend, we want baptism to be a highlight of those services. So if you're feeling the call to be baptized on the back of your program, there's some information on who to reach out and how to do that. And actually, the last thing I want to talk about is, did anybody in here do their Rooted Serve Project this past weekend? Uh, many of you did. Hey, I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, thank you for loving your communities. Thank you for being the hands and feet of Jesus. It's awesome to see so many of you go out there. So before we transition to our time of teaching, if you do two things for me. One, if you would take out cell phones, tablets, make sure they're on stealth mode. And secondly, let's be family this morning, church. Let's get up, and would you look around and welcome to me to Rocky Peak. As we go into our time of teaching, if you open up your programs, inside is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with the time of teaching. Also a great resource to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right into this. Father, we are here because we are ready to listen, and we are ready to receive. What's beautiful about your written word, about the Holy Scriptures, is that is where your presence dwells. We are told that you are the word, and so it's not like any other book. 
When we open up the Bible, it is living and active. The Bible is a source of transformation because it leads us into the presence of Jesus. And so as your followers, as your church, this morning we're saying that we are here to do more than just listen. We want to follow and act out what you teach us in the Word. Father, we want to affect our families, we want to affect our communities, we want to affect our world, and that's through following through and taking an active part in the mission you've called us to, you called us to lead. And so as we listen, speak to us, Holy Spirit, convict us, rebuke us, encourage us, grow us, all of the things that you do through your word, let us not be the same as we leave this place this morning. As I, of, as I often pray, let me as the communicator become much, much less. I don't want to be the focus, Jesus. Let you as our Messiah and our Christ be revealed more and more through your word. In your son's name, all of God's people said, amen. amen. Well, this morning, we're continuing the series that we've been in for the last six weeks or so called Rooted, the Rhythm of Relationship. And so if you're brand new, this is actually a really exciting time to be joining us at Rocky Peak. And I want to take a few moments just to explain the journey we've been on. See, the heart behind this series is that God has an epic vision, both for our individual lives, but an epic vision for all of creation. So this journey through Rooted, both in the week in services and in our life group studies is all about unpacking what this vision is. And we've been unpacking that in two core areas. The first has been in our vertical relationship with God. The first half of the series has focused on questions such as, who is God? Who is Jesus as Messiah? What is the story of shalom and peace? Who am I because of the work of Jesus? How have I been rescued from sin and darkness because of him. And then last week, Michael got up here and we transitioned into what we call the second half of rooted, meaning now that we've established our vertical relationship, what about our horizontal relationships? As a transformed follower of Jesus, how do I now think about, how do I now act towards or respond to all of humanity, both in the church and outside the church? And so last week, Michael started the discussion and the examination of our spiritual gifts. See, if you have given your life Life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit has supernaturally given you a specific set of gifts and abilities to go out and carry out the mission we've all been called to be. Michael walked us through that acronym, the shape, and something he said last week that really stuck with me is that we have been transformed to be the hands and feet of Jesus so that through that power, we can now change the world we live in. And so last week really informs and sets the foundation for this this week. This is really a continuation of that. So if you missed that message for whatever reason, I'd highly encourage you, jump on our YouTube page. You can get the messages on the free Rocky Peak app just to be able to set the foundation for what we're going to be talking about. Because this morning, we're going to continue that discussion and ask, now that we begin to identify our gifts, what is the purpose for our gifts? Meaning, what is the mission we've been called to use our gifts for? And so the topic on the table today is the topic of compassion. As Christ followers, our mission and our charge is to go and show the love and compassion of Jesus to the world around us. And what we get the opportunity to do this morning is we get the opportunity to let God give us a much more epic definition of what compassion is. For many of us, compassion is something we do once in a while. Compassion may involve feeling bad every so often for someone in need, but what we see throughout the Bible is that compassion is is a much bigger thing and endeavor. In fact, I want you to write this down. When we search scripture, we discover that compassion is a transformed heart. Compassion is a transformed heart that now seeks restoration. Compassion is a transformed heart that now seeks restoration. That is the mission of Jesus, that his kingdom brings restoration in all areas. And now, as Christ followers, that is our mission and call. When he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, he is telling us to go show compassion, meaning that we are passionate to give other people the opportunity to find restoration in their vertical relationship, in their relationship with God. But also, we are now passionate to help bring restoration in what's broken 
broken in our world in a variety of different ways, whether that's financial brokenness, whether that's emotional brokenness, whether that's health brokenness, whether that's social brokenness and the lack of justice, whatever it may be, we are called to go and seek restoration through compassion. And the other thing we're really going to learn this morning is that the biblical definition of compassion is that a compassionate heart is an active heart, meaning a compassionate heart takes active and gets involved in the lives and work of other people. This is there in your note sheet. I put a quote that's coming out of your rooted reading this uh, week. It's a great model that Jesus modeled for us of what it means to be compassionate. Jesus was God incarnate, meaning he became a man and came to us. God didn't love us from up in heaven. He pursued us, found us, loved us. He meets us right where we are and scoops us up in his arms, no matter our state of being. This is a model of how we are to serve others. We must go. Would you underline that and highlight that? We must go. We must get our hands dirty and walk along those who need our help. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack what is the view of compassion from a kingdom, a godly perspective. And I want to do that by spending a significant amount of time in a story that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Luke. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Understanding Our Call. If you've got your Bible, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 which is located in the second half of our Bible, what's called the New Testament, Luke chapter 10. Now, for those of you that are doing the rooted study, this is actually going to be in, part, in day one of your reading for this week. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be starting in verse 25. Luke writes, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Would you underline that statement or highlight it, put a box around this? Do this and you will live. Okay, let's unpack what's going on in this account. One thing that helps us understand the Bible is to try to picture what's going on as it's describing a scene. And so in this scene, what we want to picture is what's considered a typical Jewish setting. You have the rabbi teacher, Jesus, who is teaching to a group of students, different adults listening for different reasons, and they're seated. And it's not uncommon in these settings for an adult to respectfully stand up and ask the rabbi teacher, a question. In this case, the person that is asking the question is identified as an expert in the law. Other translations refer to them as a lawyer. A good way to picture it is think of a law professor, so to speak. This was someone who was part of the Jewish religious establishment. He was a recognized authority, and he lived up to this na his name. This was someone who was known to know the scriptures well, to know the Torah, the the law and the prophets, but not just the scriptures. They also knew all the rabbi, all the rabbinical teachings and wisdom, the oral tradition, the written tradition. They knew their religion. They knew their faith. And so we have this scene where it says he is testing Jesus. Now, what's interesting about the original language in this is that it doesn't seem to imply that it's necessarily hostile or antagonistic. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we have encounters where religious leaders are trying to, quote, get Jesus and trap him in a question. It seems more that in this situation, what you have, again, is an established, known religious authority who is speaking to an unestablished, a possibly controversial, an unknown, unofficial teacher. And so as a religious authority member, he is looking to protect their faith and religion by questioning, what is your view on this? And the question he asks, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life, was a very common question in Jewish religious circles. It was a question that was often debated in religious circles. It was a question that was often debated in Jewish philosophical circles. There was much to be said on it. There was much written on it. And again, if we go back to the Greek, the language the New Testament was written in, his question when he asks, what must I do, implies a thing. And so another way of saying it is, what thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so it's likely that he's looking at salvation from a works-based perspective. In fact, that's a common view that some of us have held throughout our lives as well. If I want to go to heaven, I need to earn it. And so what do I need to do to earn my salvation? In culture, we often say, I need to be a good person, right? So what do I need to do? X, Y, and Z to be a good person. And then Jesus responds by doing what Jesus does so well many times throughout the gospel is that he takes the focus back to the written word of God. And he's very intentional because if you look back on verse 28, he says, what is written in the law? Intentionally, Jesus Jesus focuses on scripture and not oral rabbi tradition or wisdom, specifically on the word of God. How do you read it? Do you understand it? Now, let me do a quick sidebar here. Christ follower, that is an important question. What is written in the word of God? How do we understand it are key questions to our spiritual maturity. If we want to grow in our understanding and our relationship in God, we need to begin to remove our filters and move away from this is what I think scripture says, this is what I feel scripture says, but to understand this is what God intended to say, and this is what he chose to say through the authority of scripture. And so this lawyer responds with two quotations from the Old Testament. The first one was from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and it was an incredibly well-known passage for the Jewish faith. It's the beginning of what's considered the Jewish Shema, which was a declaration that devout Jews would declare three times a day. And if you look at it, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the sum totality of a person. And so it is saying that we love God with everything we are. The declaration of the Shema is a beautiful declaration. Now, when it comes to my relationship with the Lord God, with Yahweh himself, there is no 50%ing this. There is no C's get degrees in this situation. It is a total commitment. All of me is committed to him. And then the second quotation that he makes is from Leviticus chapter 19, which refers to our horizontal relationships because of the love I've experienced from God, because of my commitment to him, I will then respond to others in that love. In Hebrew, the word that's translated as neighbor can often be translated as one who is near. Therefore, when people come across my path, when I come across their path, I will treat them in the love of God. And what's amazing about this is that in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, we have a similar account of what's called the greatest commandment. Now, in those accounts, it's Jesus himself that says this, that says these two verses and shows the link that that's the heart of the Gospel. Now, it's likely that other Jewish leaders made this link, but this was a very uniquely Jesus teaching and phrase. And so it's implying that this expert of the law knew what Jesus' heart was. But the other thing I really like about this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus. The heart of the kingdom of Jesus is found in the Torah. It's found in the Old Testament, and that is beautiful that it's been there since the start. And so again, Jesus says, you have answered correctly, go and, go and do. This is how we now live. The mark of a growing Christ follower is not simply listening to a good message and nodding along. The mark is what we talk about at Rocky Peak. It is listening and it is following. Now with that, the scene transitions. As we go to verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so what it means by justify themselves is he's essentially asking by that question, he's implying that there's such a thing as a non-neighbor. He's basically saying, okay, love my neighbor, but there's a limit on that, right? 
there are people that are not my neighbor, and this doesn't apply to them, right? And in fact, at this time in Jewish thought, when you heard neighbor, you simply thought other Jews. The idea of somebody who was not a Jew, a Gentile, or a Roman, or anybody else outside of that, they were not my neighbor. So the thought was, this did not apply to them. Or also, you had a group in the religious establishment like the Pharisees who wanted to keep shrinking that even further. That not just was this, our neighbor was not just outsiders, but you know what? Jews that are not holy enough, Jews that keep messing up, Jews that keep sinning, this does not apply to them as well. It's only for the select and the elite. In fact, this is a direct quotation from a book of Jewish wisdom at the time. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Now, we need to pause right here because I'll be the first one that if I honestly examine my life, I realize that I and we are more like this lawyer than we would like to comfortably admit, aren't we? That this idea of compassion, we're like, yeah, I want to show compassion to people, but there's a limit on that, right? And maybe we have different limits and different boxes, but surely this doesn't mean everybody. And so to show how epic this call and vision is, Jesus is going to begin to tell a story, a parable. And I want you to know that this is a, a famous story. Many of us have heard this before, but one thing many of us have not realized is that this story was essentially Jesus dropping a bomb and obliterating common thought and a paradigm at the time. This story, we're gonna see that not just for them, but for us now was completely shocking and absolutely radical. And so, as we read in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man, was go a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So let's stop right there and unpack this. Jesus is telling a story, and he's using imagery and geographical areas that are extremely common to the people listening to him. So if you're in Jerusalem, about 17 miles to the northeast is the city of Jericho, one of the bigger cities and a well-populated city. And at this point in history, if you were to take that road, that walk to Jericho, it descended from Jerusalem to Jericho about 3,000 feet. And through that descent, there were a lot of twists and turns and also a lot of caves and hiding spots for bandits and robbers to hide. And so this was common knowledge that this road was notorious for things like this happening. This was not a shock. This was common. And so what we see is this Jewish man has been robbed, stripped, and beaten. He is in need of help. He is in need of compassion. And so what happens next is Jesus introduces two characters into the story. And these characters would represent what we would call religious people or even godly people. The first character is a priest. Now, a priest in Jewish culture was considered a privileged part of Jewish society. They came from a special tribe, and they had very special duties that they did at the temple in Jerusalem. And so the fact that the priest is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, we can make a safe assumption that he is coming back from having served at the temple. So picture it this way. He is coming back from having done, quote, God's work or godly work. And so to hear the priest in the story, the assumption would be that he would see this man and show compassion, right? But what was his response? To go to the other side of the road and to walk away, to not do anything. And then the second character we're introduced is a Levite, another privileged member of religious Jewish society. Now, they weren't, quote, as high as priests, but they assisted the priests in the temple duties. And the fact that he was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, again, the safe assumption would be he is coming back from godly work. He is coming back from serving the Lord. So the assumption would be, well, surely if the priest didn't do it, the Levite would show compassion. And 
and he responded in the same way. Other side of the road ignored the man. Now, there might be some that would try to make an argument about why they didn't help him. Well, they maybe thought the man was dead, so there was nothing they could do. Or if they tried to help, they would open themselves to being robbed. That is not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is they showed the opposite of compassion, which is being heartless. And that's a powerful word, isn't it? And before I aim that word at anybody else, I need to aim that word at myself first. When I don't answer the call to compassion, when I choose to not show compassion to creation, to the people that Jesus loves, to all of humanity, I respond by being heartless. And what's unique about this is, again, Jesus is using a picture of, quote, godly people, And if we think about how the world thinks of religious people today, is this not their picture of us? By and large, many of the people people outside the church that think of, quote, religious people would say, religious people talk a big game when it comes to compassion, when it comes to showing love. But when push comes to shove, you don't. You're hypocrites. This isn't a problem now. This has been a problem since the time of Jesus and is why he's calling it out. And so what's gonna happen next is Jesus is gonna introduce a third character and this is the bomb that I'm talking about. So verse 33. But a Samaritan... As he, traveled, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. That means he showed compassion. He cared about the suffering. Verse 34, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which is a common medicinal agent. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is about the equivalent of two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So those two denarii would equal about a week or two of being able to stay at this inn. And so understand, here we now have a model of compassion, but you need to understand why this was so radical. Because at this point in history, racial tensions and hostilities between Jews and Samaritans were horrible. And I'm not using this word likely at this point in history, the Jews hated Samaritans. To put it briefly, a a Samaritan was a mixed race, meaning through centuries of foreign powers conquering the land of Israel, their bloodline was mixed. They They did have Jewish blood, but they also did now have foreign blood in them. And because of that, the, quote, pure blooded Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They would call them derogatory things like half breeds. They saw them as less than human. So not only did they view Samaritans as inferior, but they viewed them as flat-out enemies. And social interactions with Samaritans were greatly restricted because they were less than. Marriage, marrying a Samaritan, was completely forbidden. Interacting in any type of social context was heavily heavily restricted. The word Samaritan was a heavy insult at this time in history. The word Samaritan carried a level of contempt. What's ironic is the fact that many of us know this parable to be titled the parable of the good Samaritan. To a majority of Jews at the time, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. In fact, the Jewish assumption would be that since a Samaritan was being introduced, he would probably finish the job and kill this man. Now, to understand again how radical that was, we need to make a deeper emotional connection. And to do that, what I need to do is I want to tie that in to one of the darkest times of our nation's history, and that was the racial segregation we faced in the South in the 50s and the 60s. Jim, would you put that picture up? So this is a group of real people that are protesting the um, integration of schools in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I wanna call out some of their signs and propaganda so you know what they're saying. On the far left, that sign says, keep white schools white. 
On the bottom down here, this gentleman who's holding a flyer is holding a flyer that says, the black man who is less than the white man only wants to conquer and rape our women, and that is what will happen if we let him into our society. And then the big sign right here, communists have infiltrated our churches, now it integrates our schools, and he has a scripture reference, 2 Peter 2, 1 to 2, which warns about false prophets who will come and lead you away to the Lord. So understand what he's saying, his view of integration, his view of the black man or woman being thought of as equal, he is saying that that is a false prophet leading us away from the will of God. Now, a couple things I need to comment on this. First of all, this is an abomination. This is the opposite of God's will and heart for all people. But the second thing I want to comment on is now imagine Jesus walking into this crowd and teaching a story in which a black man or a black woman is not only the hero of the story, but the model with which we are to follow. Imagine how they would respond. Now you understand what this must be like to this Jewish audience hearing the story about a, about a Samaritan. Jim, you can go ahead and pull that down. And what do we see in the model of, our, of, of the Samaritan? Is that he felt compassion for a, quote, sworn enemy. And he didn't just throw resources. He could have maybe just thrown a couple first aid bandages and some money at him. What he did was he entered in to the suffering of this man, which is the model that Jesus has set before us. If you were with us about three weeks ago, I was teaching on how we handle suffering as a Christ follower, and we do it by remembering that God himself has entered into our suffering. And so that's what compassion is all about. It's taking the opportunity to enter in to suffering and the pain of other people. Now, hear me clearly on this. Sometimes the best option and the only option is money and resources. But at the same time, sometimes we are given an opportunity to do more, to use our resources, but also, as the Samaritan did, to enter into the journey and to walk with them in a time of need. And so, as we continue reading, in verse uh, 36, which Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say the word Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Would you underline that? Would you highlight that? Go and do likewise. This is something I often want to get myself tattooed on each forearm so I can see it regularly because this is my call. This is what I have been saved into is this beautiful mission to go and do likewise, to show compassion to a world that needs it and compassion to all people. Now hear me on this. This parable is not a model for you to go and do everything for everybody. This is also not a model for you to single-handedly try to bring restoration to everything that's broken in our world. This is a parable for the church. We are a beautifully diverse group of people with different skills, different stories, different gifts, different abilities, different experiences, and different daily worlds. This is our call to go, but the reason why this is so important is that as a Christ follower, do you see that compassion is not something we do but it is now woven into our identity as it is woven into Jesus' identity. So this parable is answering a question, what does Jesus expect out of Christ followers? Compassion. That is the expectation and that is now our lifestyle. And so with that, what I want to do now is I want to unpack this further so we fully see the epic definition that God has for compassion. And so there's three points I want to talk about briefly. First one, the first fill in there on your note sheet, is that compassion is intentionally caring for others. Compassion is intentionally caring for others. Would you underline, highlight, put a box around the word intentionally? One of the things I absolutely love about the study that we're doing through Rooted is you hear us say that the point of Rooted is to learn to develop a rhythm of relationship. And another way to paraphrase that 
is rooted is teaching us how we live, on, how to live on purpose, how to live with intentionality, how to live with God being our absolute priority. And what I love about this vision, this mission that he has given us, is just like we've been saying in other aspects of Rooted, this mission, this call to go and show compassion is not a call for an elite few. This is not a call for the best of the best or the most holy or the most perfect. This is my call. This is your call. In other words, this mission of compassion, Christ follower, is your responsibility. This is what you have been called to. This is what you have been tasked with. This is how you will make the most of your life, how you will live your life on purpose by answering this call. And we see that in our very identity. Understand who you are, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been rescued from sin and darkness, that you have been forgiven, you have been resurrected. And in that new life, you have now been entrusted with the Spirit of God, and you have been entrusted with the mission of God. And so now you have the responsibility, the joyful responsibility to go and be the hands of feet and change the world. Now with that, there's an honest question that some people might ask. Well, what do I possibly have to give? I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know if I'm good at this, but what about my experience? What about my life? Here's what you have to give. Jesus, he is in you. He is with you. You have the Holy Spirit with you. He is empowering. Understand your identity and the call that you received this mission on day one of being a Christ follower. When you gave your life to Jesus in a beautiful act of repentance, he gave you the equipment you needed and he gave you the mission and he said, go and show compassion. This is now our responsibility. This isn't in your note sheet, but I love this scripture in Isaiah 6, 8. The prophet is answering his call, and it says that, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. That is our posture as Christ followers. Jesus, here I am, send me to show compassion. I think it was last week in our rooted reading that it used the phrase that we have been blessed by Jesus so that we can be a blessing. We have experienced the compassion of Jesus, so because of that, we cannot respond and show that to other people. I like how it's there in your note sheet in 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us, now, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Here I am, send me. So that's the first truth about compassion. The second truth, the second felon is this. Compassion is reflecting Jesus's identity. Compassion is reflecting Jesus's identity. Our lifestyle the way we choose to live our lives, what we prioritize, if we choose to listen and follow, is a wonderful opportunity to show an unbelieving world exactly who the real Jesus is and what it means to follow him. If you've been with us before we started doing Rooted, you know that we've been in a journey through the Gospel of Matthew called Unfiltered. And that word has become very powerful in my own spiritual life. That our heart in that journey is that we often put filters on who Jesus is. We often put filters on who the Bible, on what the Bible is. And those filters create a false narrative. And a false narrative can take something epic and beautiful and wondrous and it can strip it down and teach the opposite of it. it can and make it come across as boring. It takes away everything that's good. A false narrative is a distortion of the truth. And so what I want to do in a humorous way is I want to illustrate this. And so Twitter on social media is one of the platforms that I'm active on. And Twitter always has hashtags that are trending worldwide. And every so often, one of those hashtags is usually a game, meaning that there's something you do that's humorous and you hashtag it so people can see you can follow that hashtag. And I forget how long ago this was, whether it was just a few weeks or a few months, there was a hashtag, one of these games that really caught my attention. It was titled, Explain a Movie plot badly. 
And so the way to play this game was it was asking you to take an epic movie and intentionally, in a sentence or two, strip, strip away everything that was awesome about that movie and explain it in the most boring and mundane way possible. And so what I want to do is I want to show you two examples of what people came up with because they were fun. Jim, could you show the first one up there? So how many of you are Lord of the Ring fans? How many of you go into this? The Lord of the Rings movies are the, epi- are the definition of what epic is, right? The Lord of the Rings movies created and took us into this whole new world with all types of different creatures, big and small, talking trees, and it had this epic storyline that here's this dark Lord Sauron who has returned in the land, and over these many movies, long movies, but many epic movies, What we have is we have this group of adventurers that need to destroy this ring of power because that'll help bring harmony back. And so the whole story is them trying to get to Mordor. And one thing that I love about the Lord of the Rings movies are the battle scenes. Those are epic, aren't they? Particularly in the second one, the two towers. Do you remember the Battle of Helm's Deep? It was armies, it was supernatural, fantastical creatures, it was long, it was crazy to see, and so nobody can argue whether you're a fan or not that this is not the definition of epic. Now, with that being said, this was how it was defined on that hashtag. A group spends nine hours trying to return jewelry. Well, that doesn't sound epic at all, right? (laughs) Jim, let's go to the next one. My favorite movie of all time. The greatest Star Wars movie ever made. Come fight me. Come fight me. (laughs) The greatest Star Wars movie ever made. And this is a perfect sequel and an epic entry in all the Star Wars movies. What we have when we come into the Empire Strikes Back is time has passed since A New Hope and everybody's in a different place. The rebellion, which was, had just blown up Death Star and is on the verge of winning, is now one step away from being destroyed and having their hopes and dreams dashed. We now have new relational tensions, Han Solo and Princess Leia. Luke is going to learn to be a Jedi. And what does that mean, him being the last of this order? We now have Darth Vader being more prominent and he has that obsession and that relationship with Luke in which we find that famous plot twist. There is nothing about this that is not epic. And in that game, this is how they describe The Empire Strikes Back. A talking frog convinces a son to kill his dad. (laughs) Jim, you can pull that down. So you understand the point I'm making that a false narrative can destroy something beautiful. And so what we need to do, Christ followers, is we need to ask an honest question. That outside the church, what is the narrative surrounding Jesus? What is the narrative surrounding people that follow him? And if you were outside the church, if you were trying to frame a narrative about who Jesus is, what you would do is you would look at the people that claim to follow him. You would look at those people and their lives and their actions, and from that, you would determine what the narrative is. And when the outside world does that, what we are realizing is this is the narrative of who Jesus is, that Jesus is angry, that Jesus is divisive, that Jesus is hateful, that Jesus produces hypocrites. Now hear me on this. In some cases, that is an unfair characteristic. But in other cases, we need to earn, own the fact that we have earned that description and we have earned that narrative. And so what it means to answer the call to compassion is we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, meaning we have the opportunity to take back the narrative. We have the opportunity to paint a picture that this is who Jesus really is. We have the opportunity to share the truth simply by doing what Jesus did, that Jesus is real, that he is good, that he cares about all people, that just as he transformed my life, he can transform yours as well. And it's amazing to me how simple it seems that simply by doing what Jesus says, we can change the narrative of who he is to the world outside the church. 
like how it's there on your note sheet from last week's rooted reading in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Would you underline that? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The heart of Jesus was he came to bless and to show compassion. And if we want to show people the unfiltered Jesus, we do it by answering this call and leading a lifestyle of compassion. That's the second truth. Or excuse me, one last thing I want to say about this is I remember hearing a pastor years ago talk about a young man in his congregation who was going about his day and came across a homeless individual. And he felt prompted by the, homeless, by the Holy Spirit to simply buy him a meal. And he spent a few minutes just engaging in conversation, learning his name, looking at him in the eye, affirming his humanity. And this individual told this young man, this is the closest to Jesus I have ever felt. That is our opportunity when we answer the call to compassion. So that was the second truth. The third thing, and the third fill-in is this. Compassion is for all people. And would you underline, highlight, put a box around the word all? See, the genius of what Jesus is doing through this parable by using a, quote, hated Samaritan is to show that our call to show compassion supersedes and shatters any barriers or walls that we would use to divide. What I love is he's basically saying the lawyer is asking the wrong question. It's not about who is my neighbor, it's more internal. Are you a neighbor to other people? I like how it's put there in your note sheet. The lawyer wants to know if he can be a neighbor to a select elite few. Jesus tells him through the Samaritan's example, let the neighbor be you. And what I realize on this point is that when I look at my own life and I look at my own shortcomings where I don't show compassion, when I look at other people's lives and the opportunity I've had to walk with people through the many years I've been pastoring here at Rocky Peak, what I've come to realize is this is often the biggest roadblocks that keeps people from intentionally choosing a life to compassion. That, like I mentioned, we are often more like the lawyer than we want to admit. That there are people in our lives or groups of people that we would say, yes, that is easy for me to show compassion to them. But there are also other people, individuals, groups of people that we would say, no, they don't deserve my compassion. They don't need my compassion. And we make these segments, but the call of Jesus is to show compassion to all of creation. And so this is often the biggest roadblock that keeps us from showing compassion. And so this is where I want to camp out on for a little bit, because this is where the biggest transformation is going to need to be changed. Because when I look at what divides me from other people, when I look at those barriers I've put up, I am not going to be able to cross those barriers with compassion under my own power. I am going to need the super supernatural wrecking ball of the love and power of Jesus to smash those barriers. If I want to fully answer this call, I need a change in my internal beliefs because what I truly believe on the inside is what overflows and affects my external actions. And so we need to examine where are we at and like the lawyer, what is our line? What is the limit? Who are the people we don't show compassion to? Now, it might be uncomfortable, but understand this. Honesty is the beginning of transformation. Honesty is the beginning of transformation. And so with that, like I said, I want to unpack this further. So there you know, you got a section titled Answering the Call. And this is the change we're going to need Jesus to transform us in. Your fill-in is this. We need a transformed sight. We need a transformed sight. What I mean by that is we need Jesus to supernaturally change the way we see all of creation and to teach us how to see people, all people, the way that he does. Because right now, the truth is, that's not natural for us. See, we are still living in a world that has been ravaged by sin. We are still feeling the effects of the damage of sin. And what sin has done to so many of us, it has made our natural tendency to see all people based on what divides us, on what separates us. For so many of us, our natural tendency is to look for the different. And often in that, there is a very dangerous temptation that we begin to not only look for the different, 
different, but we begin to determine that different from me equals wrong. Whether I think I'm better than you, whether I'm scared of you, in a variety of different ways, we become these stereotype factories that we look at people we know, we don't know, organizations, people on the other side of the earth, whatever it may be, and we go, this is what I think of you, that is wrong, therefore you are not worth my compassion. Let me illustrate it this way. I spent my childhood, I grew up uh, in uh, the Catholic Church. Anybody spend any time in uh, the Catholic Church growing up? Um, I have a beautifully devout Spanish Catholic mom, and there is a lot of beauty in the Catholic Church. And so I went to Mass most Sundays growing up, and I, always, I actually always enjoyed it a lot, but there was one section that always terrified me. And years ago, I heard a comedian talk about this, and these are his words, not mine, but it puts it words beautifully what I felt in these moments. That if you remember, those of you that experience Mass, then near the middle of Mass, there's this uh, point when the priest begins saying, peace be with you. Now, for those of you that have been in the Catholic Church, what's the response? Peace be with you. Oh, a bunch of you went to midnight Mass with me. That's great. <laughs> now, that's a wonderful section that they do in Catholic Mass, but for me, that brought a lot of terror because I knew what was coming. That was leading to a time of greeting, like we did at the beginning of service, that we would stand up and greet people, and as a child, that terrified me. I was an introverted, awkward kid. I'm an introverted, awkward adult now, but even more so then, I was an introverted, and the idea of having to greet someone and shake their hand was terrifying to me. So, what would happen is when I heard the priest start to say, peace be with you, I would tune out. I would start looking at the pews around me, and based on nothing but a visual assessment, I would begin to determine whose hand I was definitely not going to shake. <laughs> and my assessment was usually based on the fact that I determined they were different. No, they're too old, or they're too young. I don't like the way they look. They look strange. They look sick. They look weird. I am not doing that. And the reality is, I grew up still doing that. I grew up still looking at people and putting them into categories. I grew up looking at people and making snap judgments of them, of stereotyping them and not seeing them as human beings, but seeing them as less than. And so when it comes to a transformed sight as Christ followers, our whole purpose is to become more like Jesus. Therefore, we need to understand how does Jesus see all creation? And that's your next fill in, and it's this. The Imago Dei, which is a Latin term that means the image of God. If you go back to week two of Rooted, it talks about God as this beautiful, brilliant creator. And do you remember, it talked about the high point, the creation, the crescendo, the main event of God's creation was human beings. Because in all of creation, we are the only beings that are made in the precious image of God. Whether we realize it or not, the imago Dei, the image of God, is inside our humanity. And one of the things sin tries to do, and what sin does very well in many areas, is that it gets us to obscure that, it gets us to forget that, it gets us to ignore the fact that all people, the good and the difficult, are made in the image of God. And so why this is so important is that if we are going to answer the call to compassion, if we are going to uh, if we are going to affirm the imago day in our fellow human beings, when we do that, we are making two very powerful declarations. The first declaration is we are saying that we internally believe that the image of God is in all people. We believe that this is how Jesus sees all of humanity. And the second thing we are affirming is for people that don't know they are made in the image of God. We are declaring that you are made in the precious image of God, and this is an opportunity for you to be able to see this. See, I like how it's put in your note sheet by C.S. Lewis. We have never met mere mortals. Every person we have ever looked upon, smiled at, frowned at, greeted, encouraged, insulted, slandered, touched, is a person bearing the marks of divine likeness and the imago Dei. That's beautiful, isn't it? Imagine Rocky Peak. What would happen in your life? 
What kind of transformation would you see in your life if you began to allow the Lord to change your sight? What would that do to your initiative? What would that do to your passion? What would that do to the way you answer the call? Now expand that. What would that do in your families? What would that do in your places of business? What would that do in your community, in our state, in our nation? What would that do in our world? And the reason why I'm sharing this specific point is that it's very, very personal to me because this is not something that I have down. This is something I'm learning with you. In fact, I got to lead one of the Rooted pilot groups last semester in the fall. And one of the beauties of Rooted is that it often has you reflect on your life and write out prayers. And I remember last fall, I was doing one of those prayers, and the Lord very clearly spoke to me in a simple but blunt phrase, Dre, you are not compassionate. And as a mature Christ follower, I responded with a hearty, uh-uh. <laughs> the Lord did not have to work hard to prove his point. In fact, he didn't have to go far. He showed me this in my own family. Specifically, he showed me this with my own children. I have three wonderful children, and I'm so grateful for the wife that God has given me because she is the example and the model of what it means to be compassionate. And I see that in how we both respond to our kids getting hurt. If the kids get an injury and they go to their mom, she gets down on a knee, looks them in the eye, has a reassuring tone, hugs them, takes them, put a bandage, they feel better. If a kid gets hurt and comes to me, I look them up and down, I make sure that no limbs are falling off and they're not gushing blood, I tell them they're fine, get over it and get on with your life. <laughs> now think about it. If that is the compassion I show to the people I love the most, what am I like as we start moving outside that circle? And the Lord began convicting this of me. And as I wrestled with him, as he revealed, what is it that's keeping me from being compassionate? It was this point. It was my sight. It was the way I view people. The Lord showed me that you make snap judgments. You make assumptions. You stereotype. You compartmentalize. You put people in boxes. And because of that, you are not showing compassion. And so if this was going to change, I needed the Lord to supernaturally change the way I see other people. See, I like how it's put there in your note sheet by Pastor Tabidi, who's a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area. The mind is a relentless stereotyper. In a fallen world, it drives you away from the fundamental recognition that everybody you looked at in that room is like you. Would you underline and put a box around that? Is like you. Because everyone is created in the image of God. We live in a world bent on erasing the remembrance and the reflection of the creator. And so as he continued in that book, he talked about looking at people and seeing and reminding yourself that the Imago Dei is inside all of creation. And I got to be honest with you, that has had a profound effect on my life. And so now as I go about my daily life, as I watch the news, as I see what's going on in the world, when I feel myself wanting to make snap judgments or assumptions, I find myself saying a new phrase, that person is made in the image of God. Now, sometimes that's easy to say, and sometimes that's hard. But again, I don't walk alone. The supernatural power of Jesus is in me to remind me that he created them. And so what we need to do, Christ followers, is we need to examine our own life, and we need to ask yourself, where are the limits on your love? Where are the limits in your compassion? Where are those people in which you don't see the Imago Dei in them? And so what I want to do just briefly is I want to give you three categories to reflect on of difficult types of people. And I want, you to incur, I want you to examine yourself because these are categories of people, and I'm using just a few examples in each that we are called to show compassion to. So the first category is this. Are you able to answer the call to compassion when you feel wronged? When you feel wronged, let me ask you a couple of basic questions. What kind of emails do you send? When you feel wronged, what kind of voice messages do you leave? When you feel wrong, what, kind, what is your body language and your posture and the tone of your voice? Now again, I'm not saying you don't share truth, and sometimes truth is stern, but there's still compassion within truth. Let's take this one step further. You can tell a lot about the maturity of person based on how they respond to a mistake with retail and service workers. 
Has anybody here ever worked in retail or the food industry? See, the sad part about all of us that have had is that you see the worst of humanity in that. <laughs> I can tell a lot about a person based on how they treat their barista if there's an error in their order. Let's take it one step further. How do you respond? Can you answer the call to compassion when you feel wronged by your spouse? When you feel wronged by a friend? When you feel wronged by your work? When you feel wronged by your church? When you feel wronged by God himself? Are you able to answer the call to compassion? The second category to examine is are you able to answer this call to compassion when you feel challenged in your deeply held ideals and values? Brace yourself, Rocky Peak. We're going to enter the danger, and we're going to talk about politics. <laughs> and the reason why we need to talk about politics is, first and foremost, as the church, as the people of God, we need to learn how to have these conversations and how to talk about politics well. The second thing is you need to hear our heart as a church that Michael has often said, and we believe this wholeheartedly, this needs to be a multi-political place. We want to have Christ followers on all sides of the political spectrum, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Tea Party, Green Party, apolitical, and everything in between. When it comes to politics, have an opinion. Have a strong opinion. Be educated in matters. Have passion. Have values in this. But wherever you land on politics, you need to remember what you are above all else. You are a Christ follower above all else. Being a patriot is a wonderful thing. The flag is a beautiful thing, but the flag does not supersede the cross and tomb of Jesus. So remember who you are first, and remember that when it comes to politics, if you are passionate on one side of an issue, your call as a Christ follower first is to still show compassion to people on the complete other end of that issue, and as a nation, and as Christ followers, Followers, this is an area where we're failing and we need to retake the narrative. So let's talk about three hot button issues. Now the first one is this, and I'm not mocking this, I'm simply stating this, so hear my heart in this. If you are a person that you would say the primary source of my news is Fox News, if you are a person that would say Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Fox and Friends, those are the people that I trust and there's a reason behind this, those are the, the sites I read, I retweet out to them, if that, is you, if that is where you get the majority of your news, awesome. As a Christ follower, the question I want to ask is, are you still showing compassion to the people that they're sometimes angry towards or the people that don't believe in Fox News. Now let's talk about the other side of the spectrum. If you are somebody that is completely against false Fox News, if you are on the extreme and think Fox News is the most destructive thing in our society and you can't understand why anybody would use it, as a Christ follower first, are you still answering the call to show compassion to somebody that does not agree on that point with with you. Second thing let's get into is the gun debate going on right now. After the atrocity that took place in Parkland, Florida last week, this has become a loud discussion again. And so if you are on the side that believes strongly that to, to be able to uh, prevent these from ever happening again, we need stricter gun control, whether that's removing or banning assault rifles, whether that's different background checks, just making it more difficult for people to get a gun. As you go even more into that movement, if you you don't believe in something like the NRA or anything like that. Remember, you are a Christ follower first. And so your call is to show compassion to those that don't agree and are on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. And so as we go there, if you are a Christ follower who believes that more gun control is not the solution to this problem, that there are other ways to do it, that there's a second, that, that believe in the Second Amendment or our NRA members, whatever that may be, great. But do you remember that you are a Christ follower first, and so your call is still to show compassion to this side. Let's go into a third issue, and that's athletes kneeling for the national anthem. If you are a person who views that as complete and utter disrespect, if you say that is disrespectful to the troops, that is disrespectful to our nation, that is disrespectful to our flag, that there are other ways for you to be able to protest for the issues you care about, awesome, that's great, but remember, you are a Christ follower first, and so your call is to show compassion to not only the athletes kneeling, but to the people that support that. Now let's go on the other side 
side of it, if you are 100% in favor of them kneeling during the national anthem, if you believe strongly that is their First Amendment right, they are peacefully bringing up issues that we need to talk about as a society, that you not only would support them, but you would kneel yourself if given the opportunity, that's great. But remember, you are a Christ follower first. And so are you still showing intentional compassion to people on the other side of the spectrum? Do you see what I mean? That is who we have been called to be. We are Christ followers first. That means we answer the call to compassion before anything else. That's the second category. The third category to examine is when we feel superior or better than another person. And so a couple examples I can give in this is when you see somebody like in need, like in a homeless, indivi a homeless individual, do you make assumptions about what they're gonna do with the money, about what led them to that point? When you think of people like former or current convicts that are in jail and are served time, do we see ourselves as better than or do we have compassion and hope for them as well? See, what do we do in those times? And so again, we have these three categories that we need to examine because again, for many of us, there is an opportunity here to see I am, that is my line, that is my limit, and that is what Jesus wants to shatter. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as they do that, what I want you to do is we go into this time of worship, I want you to reflect on one profound question. Christ follower, what is your next step? Go and do, right? And so this could be answered in one of two ways. Is your next step an internal step? Do you need to go before the Lord? Has he revealed a person or a group of people that you don't see the imago Dei in and you need God to transform you? It may not happen immediately. It may need to be a process, but are you willing to go and engage in that process? The second way to look at it is, is there an external step? Is the Lord highlighting, affirming your gifts? Is the Lord starting to show this is where you're gonna go? This is your mission. It could be kids ministry. It could be uh, first impressions. It could be outside the church, serving the homeless, or serving children, or just cleaning up your neighborhood, whatever it may be, when it comes to this mission, what is your next step? But regardless of what it is, the message of the Lord is it's time to act. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you that you are a God of action. We thank you that you have shown us great and infinite compassion, and now we get to show that to other people. We have been blessed to be a blessing. And so I pray that we are willing to answer that call. That is our purpose. That is what you created us to be, to be your hands and feet so that we can change the world in the name of the true, real Jesus. And so as we go into this song, one of my favorite songs, in which we declare there is light in this place. There is light because of the work of Jesus, and we now get to reflect that light through answering the call to compassion. Father, I'll be the first one to confess that there are times I fall short. There are times I'm heartless. There are people I'm quick to judge to not show compassion to. And it's in those times I need your supernatural sight. As I know I have been created in the image of God, let me see the Imago Dei in all others, Jesus. Thank you for the financial gifts and offerings we're going to receive. Thank you for the saints that are just providing for our church so we can carry out our mission. We love you, Jesus, in your son's name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand together, Rocky Peak.